Hello and welcome to episode five of GBC's Labor Fair Pandemic Edition. This year, as a result of the pandemic turned endemic, we've decided to take our event fully online. Through videos and podcasts, we've aimed to document the actions and living discourse of the activists working in the streets and in the margins for fairness, equity, and social justice in an increasingly atomized and exploitative labor economy. Class consciousness begins by breaking down the dominant technological and sociological alienation so prevalent today. It begins by sharing stories and experience, expertise, and insight. We're not going to change the world with social media, but it can help to get the word out. If you like what you hear, please like and share on social media. And be sure to follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Links are in the show notes. Editor's note, this podcast was cut together from a Zoom keynote delivered by Presidents Andrea Babington and John Cartwright of the Toronto and Region Labour Council. The title of the talk is Green Jobs, Labour's Work for a Just Transition. This meeting is being recorded. We are delighted to be here as part of the 2022 Labour Fair, and this is one of the keynote sessions of this annual event, and this session is focused on the intersection of climate change and labor. And we are really honored and delighted to have guest, uh, guest speakers uh, from, uh, from the Toronto and York Region Labor Council, the president of the Labor Council, Andrea Babington, as well as John Cartwright, who is the national chair of the Council of Canadians. And they're gonna be introduced in a few moments. Uh, we're really delighted that the Community Worker Program is able to host this event. Uh, our students are really uh, focused on creating a more just society, one built on the principles that the Labour Council uh, brings to the table today in this session. So it's now my honor to invite uh, my colleague Chandra Budu to uh, introduce our guests today, the our keynote speakers. Hey, thank you, William, and thanks everyone. It is indeed my pleasure to introduce our two keynote speakers, Andrea Babington and Joan Cartwright. And I'll start first with uh, President Andrea Babington. Uh, so the President Babington is the head of the Toronto and York Region Labour Council, representing over 220,000 union members in Canada's largest urban centre. Andrea is an immigrant to Canada and in her youth joined the labour movement when she began working in the hotel sector in downtown Toronto. She became one of the youngest chief stewards in her union's history at the age of 19. As a union organizer for many years, Andrea played a pivotal role in campaigns like Hotel Workers Rising, which raised the living standard for thousands of hospitality workers across North America. Andrea has been on the Labor Council Executive Board since 2004, serving for eight years as Vice President. She is the first woman of color to sit as president. Andrea is committed to fighting for a just economic recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic and beyond, equality and justice for all workers, growing the labor movement by increasing union density and fighting for climate justice to ensure a future for all of our children. 
Welcome, Andrea. John Cartwright is the National Chair of the Council of Canadians and past president of the Toronto and York Region Labour Council. A carpenter by trade, John has served on a number of public boards and co-chaired the Toronto Community Benefits Network, focused on winning community benefits and equity hiring on major infrastructure projects. Over the years, John has helped develop the campaign for public education, public transport for the public good, and Toronto What to Watch campaigns to defend vital public services in Toronto. John has been deeply involved in anti-racism work and political bargaining for workers' rights. He has written extensively on just transition and climate justice. Welcome, John. Thank you. First, I, I, I want to say uh, it's a pleasure uh, being here with you this afternoon. And uh, I want to start off by uh, talking a little bit about myself and, and hopefully by the end of uh, our presentation, you are able to, um, the message resonate and, and to connect with John's presentation around um, uh, climate justice and, and a just transition. So um, I, I came from Jamaica. I am a Jamaican born. And I, when I came in this country, uh, just to share um, a little bit of myself, when I came into this country, I came here as a young person where my father passed away as a single parent. And I came here to live with my, my sister, our older sister. And uh, um, as a, a family who was already struggling to take care of their own, I ended up uh, in for a job into the one of the downtown Tor um, Toronto hotel, and uh, I, I, it's a lovely hotel. But once you get to the back of it, it's a whole different uh, uh, scenario. Um, I, I met. Uh, workers there, many women, newcomers that came into this country, and this was the first stop for them. Uh, when you're at that time coming in the country, and I believe to present now, your skills from your own country wasn't recognized. So the hotel sector was a very uh, important uh, spot for work for most of us as immigrants coming into the country. But what it was so... Um, uh, shocking to see what was happening behind uh, the closed door of this sector. I, uh, I can share with you that we would have um, at least twice a year, we would have these membership meetings with the general manager would bring us in with a lovely breakfast or lunch to first to thank us for the good work that we've done and, and also to talk about the profits that they made. And uh, while they were doing that, before the ending of that meeting, they were introducing new, new tools and, and new ideas of how we would push and work even harder to make more money for, for them. We were not getting that money, it's just for them. And uh, what's uh, so unfortunate about it, the more they implement these new ideas, it was causing more pain 
to the workers, especially if you work into the housekeeping department. I remember in that department where we changed over those years from three glasses and a, and, and a, a bathroom counter to where it was nine glasses, drinking glasses in a room. They, we switched from a kettle uh, uh, to a coffee, pot, a coffee machine. Uh, the bedspread changes from where we have two sheets to where it's three sheets, a blanket, a duvet, or a bedspread. And um, at the end of the day, a room attendant would make uh, 96 pillowcases. They would change 96 pillowcases. That's how much work was in those rooms and over time was changing. The hotel had no secret. They made it clear to us that they were competing with the other hotel across the street or down the street. It was a competition. And so it was very important for even the carpet that was in the hallway, thick carpet. The, the, bed, the, the mattress was thick and heavy. Some of them was called the heavenly bed. And with that, a lot of ladies had damage to their risk, carpal tunnel syndrome from lifting these heavy mattress. The, 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 the vacuums was so heavy. And what was so interesting as they change the, the, their style of working they, to make more money, to, inter, to in, um, attract the guests, they would bring in cleaning chemicals to clean those rooms faster. And I remember seeing many of those women with their nose just bleeding, blood trickling from their nose. They were very embarrassed to shake the hands of anybody else because their nails was damaged and their palm was damaged from a lot of these um, chemicals that they switch on a regular basis. And as the company continued to do that, they went a little bit further to where it, it, to use the environment as another introduction to the guests. They came up with the green choice. And this means that the guests pay for these rooms, but the guests take no service with the employer, encouraging them to refuse service for a free breakfast or $5 voucher every day. So a guest could be in this hotel for a whole week and th that room was never clean. It sounds good to the guests that they were helping the environment, but what was really happening, the employer got an opportunity to temporarily lay off those women until those guests leave. And so it's a lot of work, lots of work into that room once the guests leave, that that room attendant have no income coming in, no benefits paying, no pension paying, yet the employer got paid. At the end of the day, what happened, those room attendants have wear and tear all over their bodies from scrubbing dirty rooms that sat for days. The employer came up with a fake green choice to make money off the backs of the guests. They went further. They went further in isolating workers 
in the cafeteria making sure that they're not discussing what was happening. The sadness in most of these women highs because the, the work that they were doing, they were not getting paid for it. To add insult to that injury after those bodies are, 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 are hurt and broken, the government came back and reward those employer to, they came up with bill 99, where an injured worker have to return to their job. They don't get time to recuperate under a function ability form that the government came up and implement. What does that mean? Every year, the, the employer gets rewarded with money coming back for work, no last time at work. They pit workers against workers, reward you for not reporting those injuries to get a gift. And the, that, that list went on. The sadness in these women's eyes, they were not working because of these choices that the employer was making just to make money off their back. They have several jobs. They would leave one to the other, from one end of the city to the other, they travel for work. And when they tell you their own stories, and I remember myself working there, can attest to some of that. They would get inside their house to the nearest couch with their purse in their lap and they fall asleep. They never get to take their kids to the park. They never get to take them anywhere. Not to mention the children get isolated at school. Where are your parents? No parents turn up for these, these children because they're doing another job somewhere else. When someone retire, they're not replacing the workplace. So that person is doing two people jobs. No profit come back to these workers. They start approaching their union leaders to fully understand what's going on. Reasons, when they came in this country, they said they were here. They're not looking handout. They're here for a better life. They're here to work as hard as possible so their children don't have to work as hard as they do. But they were not getting any decent pay for this. They were work, making income below the poverty line. I know that. I remember five cents into a pension. So the union decided to work with them. We mobilized each other. We went to each other's home at their kitchen table to talk to each other about why it's important for us to stand up for our vision, what we, we wanted why, when we came in this country, when we took that job. And with that, we reached out into the community and we fought. We fought for, for a, 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 a transit pass, a, a TTC transit pass, because workers would come to work one day and they couldn't get home. They didn't have fear to get home. And we fought for that, and that was so important. We fought against the green choice. We won it in some of these hotels. We push it back, and some to this day, it's still happening. In 2006, hotels came together, 13 cities in the US. Those hotel workers stood with us, and we fought under hotel workers rising. 
we fought to lift ourselves above the poverty line. And I think it was also important because as we fought, we, we also pushed the employer to sit at the same table with us, to talk about what was important for us. And with that, they, we, we were able to agree on a training fund, a training fund where workers was able to uh, go out and train to improve the, and the jobs that they were doing, and even train to stand up and speak out. That was powerful for, for us. But it, it didn't stop there. As mentioned before, that um, the president of the Labor Council, but I want to share the connection with this, uh, the work that we do. With the Labor Council, I am I'm privileged to be able to represent the Labor Council who, I would say, with the Labor Council's body over 150 years of working and mobilizing men and women to fight for justice. The Labor Council not just fought and not just lead uh, women and men in, in the union, but just that bridge, linking the bridge with the community to fight around issues in there, in, the, in, in our community. We represent the four pillars that near and dear to the existence of working people. Climate justice, racial justice, economic justice, and social justice. And with that, we continue to press on for the last 20 years, we are forging. We aim to stay at the front line when it comes to climate justice. It takes on every core of our being. When we see what happened in our community, especially in the time of COVID, where it peels back the curtain to see that the people that are impacted the most in this pandemic and before that people thought we were just acting out. It's, it's women, it's women of color, indigenous people, the black and brown people that are affected. And it's so important when we know for sure that during this pandemic, some women wasn't able to afford childcare to even go to the jobs that they were scared to go to. And we also know some of those companies profit off of the back of laying people off, even though there was work and they continue to gain with that. So for sure, the Labor Council has never stepped back on, on the work that we need to do to make sure that the, we, are, we, are, we keep focus on that. The minimum wage, the stretch, the fight to win minimum wage, that stretch from $8 minimum wage to a $10 minimum wage. And look at where we are now, fighting to, to get a $20 minimum wage. We are there with them. We are not afraid to take the street. We are with the community and with every union that are willing to stand up for their, their, their members. We are there. I think it's very important 
to for uh, everyone to understand that we will not get what we want. We will not make a dent in climate justice if we are not pushing to make sure that we are placed at the table. They can't speak for us. There is always a priority when it comes to the 1% that always want the profit and the majority are just watching on the sideline. And with this, we want to be at the table to speak for ourselves because we know best. The majority at this point don't need to be left behind. We have to be able to push everybody to the forefront. And how do we do that? We do that by taking the street. We can go to the table and a small group of us can be the messenger, but we have to take the street for these actions. If anyone asks if climate change is not relevant, yes, it is. It is when it comes to improving our public services. When you're standing at a bus stop and the bus is not coming, who said it's just about cutting back? It's very important to know that we have the right, the right tools. We have uh, uh, enough transit on the road to take us to where we, we wanna go. And we need to know also that it's very important for us not to be ashamed to say that we need really good, good green jobs in our community for us to be able to say that we have one, one job and one job that's enough. We don't need to go from one end of the city with several part-time jobs. And we don't need to be exploited by greedy one percenter that are not looking at how we're gonna save our, our climate, our, our, our world, save this globe, and just the cutting back. So, when we take the street, when we fight, when we bargain to achieve these things, it's about all of us. Be angry, speak out, stand up, take the street, take your neighbor, take your coworker. And you know what? Students have been going out there and, and, and standing and it's very important. We are happy to see students out there um, fighting uh, for climate justice. And it's fine if you're the one that's leading us. We are ready and willing to go. So I wanna see all of you coming out on the street to stand right alongside with us. You're not too young and we're not too whole. Let us do it together. Thank you. Welcome everyone. It's gonna be pretty hard to follow up after Andrea, but I'm gonna try uh, to my best that I can. The uh, I'm a, Actually, a graduate of George Brown College. I, I'm a carpenter by trade, grew up in Scarborough, started my trade at the age of 18, and did my apprenticeship classes at George Brown. Uh, I'm also a cancer survivor because a lot of the materials that I was given to work with in the, in the first number of years in my uh, career uh, directly related to lymphoma that was rushing through my, my blood and my uh, lymph nodes and my bone marrow later on in life. And in fact, it's health and safety that has often stimulated the uh, climate activists within the labor movement, starting from that place of how to protect ourselves. Um, as Andrea says, this is a 150-year journey that we've been on in the labor movement in Toronto, and that includes, in the last two or three decades, climate justice at its core. I was lucky to be a, uh, 
a delegate from the labor movement to the COP 21 in Paris when the huge, ambitious climate accord was signed in uh, six years ago. And at that meeting, there was about 400 trade unionists in a, in a room one day when we were talking about the role of labor in moving this agenda forward. And one of the speakers was the head of the, uh, the workers in the tar sands in Alberta, Ken Smith, headed uh, uh, the, the local union of CEP. And he got up and said, you know, people are, would ask, what am I doing here as an oil worker saying that we should reduce emissions and we've got to make a change in our world? And he said, I remember sometimes ask me that. And here's how I answer. I say, imagine you've got a good life. You're living with your wife and your two kids. You've got a nice home on the edge of town. And suddenly a forest fire breaks out. And that fire threatens uh, your whole home. And you and your, uh, your family, you grab everything you can in your arms and you run away from that fire, but it keeps coming after you. And suddenly you come to a river. And at that point, you can either throw everything you've got away and try and swim, or you could just stand and perish. Or if you'd started earlier, you could have built a bridge. And people in that room thought of that message. You could have built a bridge. And this is actually the fire that engulfed his town of Fort McMurray a year after he told that story. And we know that fire and, and uh, floods and extreme weather is changing our world around us, and we need uh, solutions. Our labor movement says that we have three crises, in fact, in our society right now. We've got a jobs crisis, a, a climate crisis, and an equity crisis. And if we, particularly in this city, if we don't figure out how to integrate solutions to those three issues, we won't be doing our job. We are a city. And that since First Nations gave us the name Toronto, we are a city of uh, Immigrants and refugees and descendants trying to figure this stuff out together. We know the history of global capitalism, of trade deals, of the legacy of colonialism that visits indigenous people here, the structural adjustments that have been imposed in you know, the global south countries and then back here under uh, some of these uh, governments. And we've also seen what happens with armed conflicts and proxy wars. And climate disasters are sometimes at the root of those. Um, there's an amazing plaque in the city of Barcelona that in response to what's happened with the crises of refugees reminds people of how many people die every year just in the Mediterranean trying to have refuge from the place they've had to leave because of economic or massive climate impacts or war. So we know that climate is a health issue. Uh, we've created some slides to, to, to say to people, you know, we're going to pay more later if we don't fix it now. And this is a sister from, uh, from our, one of our unions, SEIU, who's a frontline healthcare worker. We were calling her heroes uh, when COVID came. But her point is, these things are completely connected. And for you who are in school and part of the education system and thinking about your role in the future, how we educate each other about climate is absolutely crucial as well. There's people that say, oh, you can't take action around climate. That uh, if, you, if you take action, it's going to cost jobs. The response from our labor movement is very simple. There are no jobs on a dead planet. We have to tackle these issues that are in front of us. But we also know 
that we were moving to a consensus on, on after Kyoto and other climate accords are made. And then suddenly after the climate crash, sorry, the, the fiscal crash in 2008, there was a massive pushback from the billionaires that run the oil and gas and coal industries to turn back the politics of our country. The, uh, we also are seeing that this is a political dynamic. And as Andrea talked about, the question is, who has the power to force decision makers, whether they're government decision makers or wealthy corporate leaders, to do the right thing, to choose a high road agenda instead of the one that leads to the most profit, regardless of the outcome. So in the city of Toronto, we've been actively involved as, in fact, Toronto is a leader on climate work for decades now. And our process is called Transform TO. It asks the question uh, for us to consider how we reduce greenhouse gas emissions where we live, how we live, how we move people and goods, how our buildings operate, and what do we do with waste? Because these are the really crucial questions um, that are in, in front of us as we're trying to figure this stuff out. As I said, I'm a, car I'm a construction worker. This is one of my fellow carpenters from Local 27, just working north of Toronto, uh, building subdivisions. But he and I understand one thing, that in the same case as when you're building a building, if you start cutting corners, if governments start cutting corners or companies start cutting corners on moving to low carbon, then it's not going to work. And you're going to end up replacing not only the roof, but also the carpet and the drywall below. And it's exactly the same if people delay taking action on climate. And we've seen those delays, particularly in Ontario, huge setbacks when the provincial government was elected uh, in 2018, huge setbacks before that when a federal conservative government was elected uh, and walked away from all of those commitments. And we still see pressures to say, no, 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 we can't move forward. Uh, we have to continue to just pump out as much money, greenhouse gases, fossil fuels. That's what we've got to do. So there is an alternative. There are solutions to this question of how do you do it right? How do you build it right? And the labor movement in Canada has, has grappled with these issues for many, many years. And this is the, the, the climate action plan that we've just rolled out adopted unanimously at our convention last summer, and it has a number of key points. Number one, it has to be a worker-centered agenda. That means working people have to be included and engaged, just as Andrea talked about when hotel workers were forcing those companies to raise standards and, and adopt the high road post, uh, process. There has to be a just transition for workers and communities. Just because somebody got a job working in a gas field or left their home in whatever part of the country to go to Fort McMurray doesn't mean they should be left behind in this process. We have to have what's called an actual just transition. If you don't involve the majority of us, people of color in Greater Toronto, Indigenous people on the other part, and young people in a shared prosperity, it's not going to be right. If we don't, as Canadians, understand our crucial question of truth and reconciliation, respecting the rights of Indigenous peoples, we won't get it right. But we can get it right if we look at the skills we need, the training we need, and something called community benefits agreements. That's about making sure that we have an equity agenda, that equity-deserving or groups are getting a place in good jobs, whether it's in blue-collar or white-collar jobs.
The next piece is we're saying there needs to be an industrial transformation. We need to grow our green manufacturing industrial capacity. Councillor Mike Layton, who leads this Transform TO process in the city of Toronto, phoned me a, a couple of months ago and said, how are we going to figure this out? Through Transform TO, we're talking about replacing every single furnace in every single building in Toronto. Where are we going to find a million heat pumps? Will we build them here or will they have to come off a, uh, a shipping container somewhere in the Pacific Ocean? Why don't we go and think about making sure when we're building green buildings or we're designing new vehicles or low carbon uh, buses that those are manufactured here so people also have good jobs. We want to talk about responsible development of natural resources, not uh, cut and run, not, not uh, dig and, 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 and uh, desert communities, but how do our natural resources sustain us for generations to come? And we want to respect environmental and human rights beyond our borders. And the question of the mining companies in Canada or the trade deals that Canada signs, do they support human rights or not? There are areas of leadership and innovation and growth. There's about renewable energy, tremendous opportunity uh, for renewable energy, but that means we've got to stop pouring billions of dollars into fossil fuels. How we think about transportation of people and goods is crucial. Uh, right now, there's hydrogen being uh, created as an alternative to heavy vehicles and heavy trucks and ships going across the ocean would dramatically reduce the CO2 emissions. There's infrastructure and building retrofits. Toronto is saying we'll get to net zero every new building by 2030, and we'll retrofit every building to be net zero by 2050. Huge opportunities if we think about it and include innovation and growth in this area. And then there's a vital role of the public sector. The fact is the market and uh, market-dominated economy has failed. It's failed on climate, it's failed on social justice, it's failed on economic justice. So we need clear planning and coordination. We need to actually invest in retrofitting public infrastructure. We need to understand what remediation could be, what restoration could be, how to adapt the built form around us so that it's resilient in the place, face of extreme weather events floods, fires, uh, ice storms, and other things. Public services, as we've seen with COVID, are crucial for people to get through tough times. They're absolutely vital that they be funded properly and that we invest in public services and emergency responses in an appropriate way. And so what we're seeing is that every aspect of our economy must decarbonize. We've got to plan with every workplace and every sector and workers, as Andrea has said, must have a seat at the table to have for both sectoral and workplace levels. Uh, this is just a quick snapshot of where the greenhouse gas comes from at Canada level. It's different in Toronto, but we wanted to share that with you. And the next slide says the green print for Greater Toronto is something our labour movement has actually written in 2016. How will we look at every single sector of Toronto, every neighbourhood of Toronto, and move it to low carbon while ensuring a job-rich transition, and you can find that at laborcouncil.ca climate. And so the principles of a just transition, of how do we move from an economy that's choking our earth to one that's, that, that will sustain us, includes these points. Income support for workers during their transition. Local economic development tools for our communities. Realistic training and retraining programs that lead to decent work. Knowledge sharing, the adoption of best practices, a framework to support labor standards. 
We've seen in the recycling industry, even though it's a good environmental thing, we've seen people working for temp agencies, for private companies at minimum wage for year in and year out sorting recycling. We need standards that say people deserve decent wages and a union. There's lots of research to be done. And again, crucially, we need an equity lens to address the impacts uh, on racialized and indigenous communities and ensure the outcomes of shared prosperity. We have good examples here in Toronto communitybenefits.ca, the Community Benefits Network, has bargained those things on transit projects. Finally, Alex is a, is a young electrician, just finished his, his trade, and he puts it exactly the way we think about it in the universe. We've got the skills that can be put to work on projects that are either good or bad. It's going to be the same skills and the same wages, but we can do it with positive results. Let's build a better world because there is no planet B. Thanks very much. Thank you so much, uh, Andrea Babington and John Cartwright. I think we've been really challenged as uh, community workers to really uh, bring together these uh, fights for climate justice with the fight for racial justice, for economic justice, and for social justice, and to do this in a in a grounded way in the in the move forward. The, uh, a just transition that really involves workers taking the street. So maybe I'll begin uh, with a question. Most of the students that are on the, in this meeting today will be graduating shortly, and they'll be looking for employment. And certainly uh, their professors have encouraged them to look for employment where their rights as workers are respected. Uh, but what, what can they expect from the labor unions that they'll hopefully become members of in terms of this work for uh, climate justice that's done in a way that includes everybody? So this is, I, you know, as I mentioned before, uh, for, um, as worker, the the kind of experiences that we we already um, we learn from, and as labor union, we this is part of what we continue to fight about. Whether we are rallying in the street or we are at bargaining table trying to negotiate uh, for improvement with this. So as I, I, a person going into the workforce with a union, um, I think it's very important to my advice. I would say. Um, not to be shy, uh, get to know your union and um, approach your union. It's very good if you're able to also, uh, you know, get involved. Uh, there's never any, uh, there's no reason to be, to say it's my first time and to step back. It's, uh, with all the things that's happening right now, it's very important if you're able to step up and willing to learn and, and to mobilize uh, each other uh, and and just to find out what is at stake and and how you can play a role in it uh, once you feel passionate about it i think it's you're able to mobilize others for the kind of change that you're looking for in workplace there is so many uh old ways old practice and we're trying to get to a place where a lot of that is out and we are adapting uh to the new changes uh, also so you get to be that ambassador to monitor and make sure that you're pushing for those employers to to step up to the plate and uh, and make the changes that we need to be in a better and a healthier uh, world. Is there a strategy used by the unions? 
to lobby the legislative and judicial leaders to choose solidarity over profit. Yeah, so this goes back to 150 years of uh, people coming together, winning collective voice to address not just wages and benefits at workplace, but the kind of communities we want to build. We call that political bargaining. So, for instance, you think about pretty well all the public programs we have now, whether public health care, uh, basic health and safety uh, laws, worker compensation, unemployment insurance, social safety nets. All of those came from working people uh, demanding those of government and going through everything from uh, you know, political lobbying, politely going and saying, here's what we add, to disruptive things, uh, as we had to do in, in the past years around health and safety. We had to shut down job sites. We have to walk out of uh, uh, manufacturing plants. We had to walk away from, from mines and force decision makers to actually step in and get something done. There's a wonderful example down at the, uh, in Windsor. There's a plaque there by the Auto Workers Union that in 1952, through strike, won the first health benefits in any industrial workplace in the country. And it said, we've struck and fought to get health care for ourselves. Now we will not rest till all Canadians have health care. That was written in 1952, and it wasn't until the late 60s that we got public health care, but it was because we relentlessly came back on other issues like uh, women's rights, the right to work you know, free from sexual harassment, for equal pay for equal pay, we often combined fights in workplaces, demanding those things of employers and demanding legislation, working with the women's movement, with com- especially with you know, specific communities. So it's a combination of working people having their collective voice in their unions, but also in their communities, in whatever that space can be. If you're a tenant, you know, are you part of a tenant organization? If you're, if you're a, a young person, are you part of, you know, have you been part of a student's union at George Brown? Do you anticipate that? Do you ask the student's union to take up some of these broader issues? Um, there's all kinds of effort, uh, capacity. It's what we call political bargaining. We, as Andrea mentioned, we did that the $10 minimum wage. Uh, none of our members were working for eight bucks when that was eight bucks. But we went out and fought like hell. And over nine months, we forced the, the government of the day to move it up to 10 and a quarter over three years. And almost everybody that benefited weren't union members. But we did it because it's right for the Canada we want to build together. Somebody's asked you to elaborate on the idea that change is guaranteed, but justice is not. And also, there's a question, is there a strategy used by the union to uh lobby legislative and judicial leaders if we if you don't take action you can't achieve anything um you can always take on the fight all the way and 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 as you see like we've been a lot of these things that we've been fighting for for years and um we're still waiting for we're still waiting for for um, someone to step up and to own it, and so if we if we have to be at the forefront to first fight fight to get the changes in place. I think it's very important that we first step up to to fight for the changes that we want. Getting justice out of it, it will never be handed to you. And I'll give an example from the gig economy. You know, uh, uh, Fedora came into into Toronto saying we're going to deliver. You know, we're going to deliver uh, food. Uh, people can ride their bikes and deliver food. And But, oh, you're not an employee. 
And so there's no minimum wage laws apply to your work. There's no benefits apply to your work. And you and workers, those bike couriers had to organize and demand to get change. They actually won at the labor law to say we're employees. The company responded by shutting down in Canada. Uh, but DoorDash and the others are still there. And, and now the question is, what does the Labor Board say uh, about, you know, are people permanently independent contractors with no rights and no standards? Or actually do all work for a living and effectively for these multi-billion dollar companies? It's a, no matter where you turn, if it's about, you know, oh, we're going to uh, change the electricity system to, to get rid of coal plants. Well, if you're working in a coal plant, in some places, you just got told, here's your pink slip, end of story. And so what about justice? What about transferring those same skills, but with a, with a cushion, over to working on, on renewable power? Well, that justice only happens if somebody can bargain with the owners or the governments to say, you must provide that skills training or that, that cushion for people to change uh, into the new economy. Justice is only there if we have the power to force it out of under capitalism the way things work in the 20, you know, in, in this 21st century. And in terms of lobbying, I, I've kind of described that, but yeah, we, we go and meet with them. We get involved in, you know, labor at, uh, are involved in special committees. We make representation. We bring forward, as we did with the community benefits, for instance, we wanted to get racial justice with this massive investment in billions and billions of dollars of transit. And most construction workers look like me. But we wanted to make an opportunity for all our communities to have apprenticeships and or working in the professional administrative jobs connected with those things. So we went and bargained with the provincial government. Communities fussed up a lot. You know, young people fussed up a lot. The politicians said, oh, we better do something. And then the unions walked in with a solution and they said, well, that's all right. Why wouldn't we do that? I said, good, let's make it happen. I think James is asking about COVID-19 uh, with owners struggling, probably wondering what how that will impact the twenty dollars, and I will say, and I, you know, and I asked James the question: since the pandemic, the last two years, if he's gone into McDonald's and they reduced that price, if anything, the price increased over the pandemic for everything. Um, since the pandemic. Uh, if he ever went to any dollar store and that door was closed. And I think it's re really important that we understand that it's not just about the $20. If you're at a workplace and it's time to negotiate, there is an employer who's ready to come to the table to cry poor. But this pandemic did very well for a lot of employers. The people that struggled the most was the ones that went on to EI and basically collect those money that they paid into it over the years. A lot of these business wasn't affected. Uh, if they closed their door, they were doing them virtually. So it's very important that, that we are not out there feeling sorry for them, but to press on and make sure that we, you know, squeeze that lemon, squeeze it until every juice stop out of it. You gotta pay the bill. We see right now, uh, there was a little bit of shelter and, and um, rent. And then the landlord is back saying, I want my money. So they're not worried about, if anything, it's more people living under tent that you're going out and asking for this raise because they certainly are increasing their, 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 uh, and their own business out there. And it's right that you get your share of that pie. They're not poor. 
We're not talking about the mama and papa who had to close up. A lot of these guys already was given opportunity to continue running their business. Over the pandemic, some of them had delivery to home and uh, online business. They're, they never they never shut down. So let me tackle the other ones. Although I will say that the vast majority of low-wage workers don't work for small mom and pops. They work for billion-dollar companies like you know, our RBI, which was Tim Hortons, if you remember when we tried to raise the minimum wage there and took people's coffee breaks away from them. Uh, the vast majority of Canadians work for somebody else. 85% of us work for somebody else and more and more, as we've seen, those are billionaires that have become trillionaires in the pandemic, as Andrea is saying. On, on the, the recent accord, it actually, uh, I think the one strong piece of it is the, the Liberal government had promised time and time and time again to take strong actions. And often they stopped because they got hit by lobbyists. They suddenly bought a transmountain pipeline costing billions and billions of dollars instead of you know, uh, investing in those things. This accord is political bargaining, in fact. It's, the, it's the, the party that holds the balance of power, the NDP, saying, you promised to do these things. Now there's a timeline and there's an oversight to make sure you're actually doing that. We've been promised a just transition uh, uh, legislation now for four years from this government. They still haven't tabled anything. This is finally going to force them to do that, including many of the things that I've described in my, in my overview. On the pensions, it's about uh, people who are connected with pensions demanding that the pension trustees see the, the, the liability in the future of stranded assets. That society is going to say you can't keep digging that crap out of the ground. And listen, my grandfather was a coal miner and his father before and his father before and his father before. But you've got to be able to say we don't want our money being used to burn up this planet so our grandkids can't breathe the air and drink the water. That's not fiduciary responsibility. I've been a pension trustee. I know what it means. We've got to put those squarely in front of people. And the unions uh, you know, that have pensions or part of pensions can mobilize and, and get all kinds of people in that plan to send letters and demand that the trustees do the right thing of looking at the long-term liability of investments that are going to burn the planet. Uh, I think our time is coming to an end. I'm wondering if we could have some closing comments, if if uh, John and Andrea. Yeah, let me go first because Andrea's uh, Andrea is the closer. Um, I was invited to a convocation at York University some years ago by one of our heroes, Robbie Armstrong, one of the black leaders of our union movement back from the 1940s who challenged systemic racism as part of the Joint Labor Committee on Human Rights. We name an award after him every year for human rights activists. And I watched Bromley stand in front of that room of hundreds and hundreds of graduates from York University and say, you can make a choice in what you do with your life. You can choose to kind of get ahead, whether or not you're, you know, you're, you're helping people or, or, or not in that process or you're, you know, whether you're stepping on people in that process, or you can dedicate your life to making this a better world. And if you choose that, the rewards are immeasurable. And we'd invite you to make that choice in your life as you go forward. I, I just want to leave you with uh, um, this, uh, my, my own departing word. And it's also, I'm speaking on behalf of, uh, of uh, the, the 220,000 um, members of uh, the Labor Council. And for every one of these uh, 220,000 members, 
you could calculate that three at least three times over. And I'm just talking about a few um, families or friends that they know uh, in their own community. And if you're not in the union, you are a part of the community. And if we are union members, when we leave the workplace, we go into our own community to lead it. And one thing we know for sure that everything is not all right. Mm -hmm. I think we got a little over two years to get it, let it sink in. When we didn't have much place to go, we were able to process a lot of this and we were able to see firsthand what's happening out there. And we, it's not about just getting through the pandemic or getting busy again. I think it's very important that we use this opportunity to um, start to make commitment. What is it that we're gonna do? What is our, our, our role? Do we think that it's time for us to act? Do we think that this, this world that we are in is at stake? How important it is for us to make sure, one, that we are taken care of and we take care of who around us. And to do that, I think it's very important that whatever you're hearing from us today, um, you're able to take it and process it and build on it. Never feel like you're one person. Uh, my, my famous word, uh, someone told me before, one of my, my leader, um, when we bargain and we, we put six people at the table to bargain, it doesn't happen at the table. Those are just the messenger that take the issue there. It happened on the street. We want to see you more on the street. We want to go out there in numbers because we know for sure. If, if, we are, if one person out there shouting, it takes longer. But if all of us in agreement and join each other, we can get there faster. It's a lot of work. So I, 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 I invite you to take this on and, and, and let us go. Like you have a lot of information that we don't have today and we would love to share those with you. The more of us is the stronger we are. We have uh, elections coming up. Whoever is here and election ready, ready to vote, let us take some of those to the to to the poll, municipal and uh, and and provincial election. Who say that these issues are not election uh, issue? Let us use them and let us continue to mobilize within. Thank you very much. Uh, Andrew and John, thank you for sharing these uh, inspirational and powerful ideas during this labor fair. It has been a, a great opportunity for us to hear and learn from your personal testimonies about the importance of standing for our right to fight and defend human dignity, to not give up and to speak up under any circumstances, as you've been telling us during this presentation. You have been for many years at the front line, defending and advocating for the rights of workers, contributing to build inclusive and prosperous communities, fighting for social justice and sustainable societies in Canada and beyond these borders, always fostering solidarity. In the last uh, years, the labor movement has been active advocating and working to create green jobs and as you say, a just transition. In that respect, I can assure you that community and social workers are key allies 
to the labor movement as we share many ideals, dreams, and commitments working directly with people and communities, protecting and advancing human rights and social justice. We all face complex challenges in the years to come. You have identified one important area, as I was reading your documents, the new work environments. This includes the trend to work from home and the unjust uh, part-time, low-wage, you know, insecure jobs. These new work environments impact negatively in the social interaction. And they could limit the opportunities for workers to organize and to defend their rights. From my student experience, because of the pandemic and the online learning modality, I have seen new opportunities, but also I've seen more barriers to organize and to act more actively, you know, to express concerns, to propose, to work together and to demand solutions on key issues beyond academic learning, like the financial and the housing crisis we students are facing today. So many practical and great ideas are coming from students and they need to be heard. There are some new challenges and they demand creative ways to foster positive changes and to strengthen the work of the student union and organized work. For this reason, I believe it has been important to hear from you today during this Labor Week to dialogue, to get motivation and to connect students, faculty, community workers, and the labor movement around those four pillars that you mentioned, the racial, economic, social, and climate justice. So in these times of recovery and pandemic, it is vitally important to reach out, to connect among the different sectors. And this climate crisis we are living is a great opportunity to work uh, uh, closer together. Unions are on the new waves of attack, misinformation, divisive and bullying practices against workers who want to organize. But at the same time, we see more people, more workers are becoming interested in participating, mobilizing, speaking out to demand better conditions and to protect fundamental human rights. Let's continue working together, supporting each other for the benefit of all and for the protection of Mother Earth. Always in solidarity. Thank you very much, Andrea and John. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. This podcast could not have been made without the support and sponsorship of Unifor, the Toronto and Region Labour Council, big shouts, the Community Care Centre of the Student Association at GBC, OPSU, Locals 556 and 557, big shouts as ever, and the GBC Centre for Preparatory and Liberal Studies. Special thanks to Presidents Andrea Babington and John Cartwright of the Toronto and Region Labour Council. Please review the show notes to see video of this talk and to learn more about the Labour Council and how to get involved in their climate change initiatives. And, of course, to access the rest of the fully digital GBC Labour Fair Pandemic Edition. This is the first of two Zoom keynotes from this year's Labour Fair. Stay tuned for a supercut of our keynote talks with Riley Yesno coming very soon.